Okay, well, um, the, uh, the topic tonight is the first of what I'd plan to be three talks. As I got into it, I might, depending on how we go, um, put a fourth one in, uh, because it's a very big topic the way I'm approaching it. It's obviously incredibly controversial, um, and it's, it's one of these topics which uh, people studiously avoid. Um, so, you know, I, I searched through Richard Middleton's New Heaven and New Earth, which is a fabulous book, but the, the most this gets is a, is a kind of evasive footnote or two. Um, and um, it is a topic which I think uh, is, is very much, however, a topic of, of, of today. It's coming up a lot more. Um, and the way that I want to look at it is to approach it, um, I wouldn't say cautiously, but I would say not, not head on, but indirectly, because I think the frameworks with which we start to use language here end up betraying us. So the first talk is really almost laying out the landscape of the debate um, and trying to find, in uh, Rick's great words, uh, a grammar to think about it. Because once you start to talk about topics that are halfway sophisticated, the, what, what, what I would call the meta-language becomes important. The language by which you have the language becomes incredibly important. And it's nowhere more so than this one. And so the first topic will really try and lay groundwork. Um, and the, and the, if it's second and third, or if we've got the appetite for it, a fourth one, we'll move into... Um, some alternative views, which I've been marinating my mind in, and I must say it's been a joyous journey. Is that barbecue marinade? Yeah, barbecue marinade, no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, keep quiet. You can't keep quiet, Rick, it's not possible. Um, so the first thing to acknowledge is that we really see through a glass darkly on this topic and topics to, do with, topics to do with immortality and so on because we're really going outside of the paradigm in which we live. Um, so it's by nature challenging. So there's an epistemology around it. In other words, how do we know what we know, etc. And um, I, I don't intend to be too... Um, I've got strongly forming views, but I hold them lightly. I mean, I don't hold lightly, for instance, the view that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't hold lightly the view that, uh, um, you know, he's brought in a new heaven and a new earth. We declare those 100%, but some of these views here we need to hold lightly. And um, I love this quote by a man. Anyone here ever heard of Peter Sterry? Yeah. Well, he, as you can see, lived in the 17th century. I'll say more about him later. Um, but a, some of the most gorgeous stuff I've ever read on the, the kingdom of God and the temple of God. But what he said is, I, I love this, uh, all our notions and opinions can be but broken things. We have in them but pieces, but bits of spiritual truth and but little, very little of spiritual glory. He was just humble before the greatness of God and was aware that no matter what I say, it'll be inadequate. And ironically, the, the more 
The people who tend to say this tend to be the people who've got the most to say about the glory of God uh, when you read them. Um, more recently, um, not, not Roger Bacon, sorry, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. Um, this is really important because I think F.F. F. Bruce is really one of the great pioneers and doyons of biblical scholarship, a great, great man. Um, and this is what he said in the introduction to a book on hell. The biblical evidence is ambiguous. Christian theologians disagree over the destiny in the age to come of those who live and die without God. The New Testament answer to this question is much less explicit than is frequently supposed. The only resurrection on which Paul enlarges is the resurrection of believers viewed in participation with the resurrection of Christ. So that, I think, is a very kind of good statement, and it's very true. It's one of the things that is most obvious in this whole debate is Paul never, ever, ever mentions hell, which is thought-provoking. But I, I like Bruce's, I think, I'd, I'd say humility. Like This is genuinely an ambiguous topic. And you can use uh, this sense of uh, seeing through a glass darkly as an excuse not to, not to get any ideas, um, and I'm not going to use it as an excuse like that. I'm going to plunge in and take ideas for you. Um, but I'm going to do it humbly and hold it lightly. And what I'm going to cling to is what Bacon did say, which is, which is a great statement, which is the truth proceeds more readily from error than from confusion. Uh, it is a great statement uh, of epistemology, which I've loved ever since I heard it, and I think I have David Jones to thank for it. You think so? Yes, you do. I do. But, um, it's, what's his name? Bacon, Bacon. Oh, I was doing this in Perth last night. Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon. Yeah. Sorry, it was Roger the Payton. So there we go. Francis Bacon, the great what, Renaissance essayist. Sorry. My excuse is this was done on the plane to Perth for a business meeting last night. No excuse. You're not going to take it, Rick? No pity. No pity from the audience. Um, what, what Bacon meant was that um, and in the... In the in the growth of knowledge in science, um, people often just simply lacked a hypothesis on major things, like, say, the nature of oxygen or the way the heart works. And everyone's all over the shop, and people are speculating and putting up, and, and, and that's confusion. We don't get anywhere from confusion. The paradigm shifts came generally from great people who put out a case that was new and clear. Now, it wasn't always 100% right. But from then on, what they can map is incredibly guided discussion. So I'm going to put forward a hypothesis which I am getting attracted to. It's the minority position, but I'm going to put it forward. I'm going to put it forward because then I make myself the stalking horse for what we all wonder, okay? I'm not saying I am right, but I'm going to, that'll, that'll help clarify. And I figure since no one else has got the guts to talk about this, I will, right? Because... The good part is I, I, I really don't belong to any theological institution, so I can't get blamed for what I think. And I have no training in theology, so... Always helps. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. It's a Thank very you. brave position uh, on, a, on a topic that, as you said, is fraught. And uh, to, yeah, to, to hold a space and use that as the pivot for conversation. Incredibly valuable. Yeah, thank you. yeah, thank you. 
And I have thought about this for several years, by the way. This is not, it's been creeping up on me. I thought it's one of those things you say, I know I've got to talk about this one day. You can see it coming. Anyway, um, but it is really, I think, it is extraordinary. There is a, there is a sort of a um, dynamic around this discussion to pick up what David said, which is most extraordinary. And that is this, the majority position in hell, everybody hates. Everybody wishes wasn't true. I mean, I was going to quote from a book by this guy. He wasn't that... It's a book on the resurrection. It's actually a fairly mediocre book, to be blunt. That's why I don't want to quote from it, because I don't want to say publicly the guy's name. But he was trying hard, you know. And, and he had a traditional position, which is, we're all going to hell. And then he just talked his way out of it. I like, I wish this wasn't true. The first thing I've got to say, I wish this wasn't true. And then he starts saying, this objection. Yeah, I, th I think of this objection too. And you never know, perhaps... You know, so it's this extraordinary thing where there's a majority position tenaciously held that nobody likes, which is really intriguing to me. Um, so it's an inevitable question, I think, in today's climate. I think it is an inevitable question. And the reason is there is a rise of, create, let's call it creation theology, of which we're part, but people like Richard Rohr, um, uh, people much more getting a bigger picture, Tom Wright, of what God is doing very positively. And very positively, it's a declaration of hope to people about being made in the image of God. That is wondrous. Um, but that same movement, which is so positive, has got this dark bit that, oh, look, by the way, um, there's bad news as well. And... Uh, Look, I love Tom Wright, but this is just an absolute giveaway. So this is what Tom said in an interview. Much of traditional Christianity gives the impression that God has these rather arbitrary rules about how you have to behave. And if you disobey them, you go to hell rather than to heaven. So he's junking that position, fair enough. What the New Testament really says is God wants you to be a renewed human being, helping him to renew his creation... And his resurrection was the opening bell. And when he returns to fulfill the plan, you won't be going up there to him. He'll be coming down here. Isn't that fantastic? What doesn't he mention? On the negative side, he says, look, there's a negative doctrine about you know, and heaven and hell. The positive side, he just conveniently doesn't confront where hell fits into this picture. And that's very typical of this sort of aversion because... Um, I think, actually, there's a, lot, there's a price to be paid if you, if you go into bat on this. Tom wrote about, his position is sort of, I'll, I'll get to it in the middle, it's sort of middle of the line position, um, and, uh, you know, certainly a tenable one, but uh, he wrote an article some time back defending a semi-orthodox, slightly uh, uh, milder position, and he says, look, the idea that everybody's going to get saved, you know, it's just like we're, we're all trying to just be nice to people. And that was a really dirty tactic. Now, that's a dirty rhetorical tactic. That, that's not Tom at his best. Because if I have a, an opponent and I trivialise their position by just, just trying to be nice to people, I've trivialised the debate. It is not trivial. And the reason it's not trivial is because it draws into question what, who God is. It's not being nice to people, it's who God is. And Bentley Hart is probably the one we... Now, we all love Bentley Hart when he has Dawkins in view because it's like a howitzer gun and he blows him out of the water. But Bentley Hart on hell is just the same. And what he says is, quote, unquote, most Christians serve an awful God, full stop. That's what he says. 
Um, his, uh, his talk on it is only 35 minutes, you can YouTube it. It really needs a translator because um, it's pretty dense. But essentially, that's his headline. Um, and uh, he actually, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that later. But, but my, my general point is that in the world of creation theology, we've just got to confront this question. What about the dark side of all this good news and where does it fit in? And, and the more positive one becomes in one's ability to declare, um, the more this becomes uh, difficult to fit in. And it's getting particularly difficult the more you start to have partnerships, working partnerships with people who are not Christians, the more you move into the public space because now the people who are going to hell is your children, your, your workmates, the real people, and, it's, and, and in some cases, really, really good people. And it's, it, speaking personally, I've just found that, and a, it isn't even that, uh, it just almost leaves me with a God a bit like Bentley Hart. That's how, it, it, it depresses me, I don't like the thought. The only way to handle it in most of my life has just been to not think about it, to be honest. Um, it's a vexed question, I love this image, because <laughs> that's the kind of feeling you get. Headmaster, on high, um, I'm judging you. Um, look, the quotes by Calvin, hell is stacked with babies not a cubit long. You know, God is not love. He says that <laughs> to those who, who only, to, he's only love to those whom he saves. Um, and some of the language is absolutely confronting from the traditional hell people. Um, at least they're honest. So I thought in looking at this uh, question of hell, we really should confront its reality. And the best example I know is from Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Has anyone read that by James Joyce? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everyone knows what I'm going to read. I mean, it's the middle of the book. It goes on for about 20 pages from memory. But as an impressionable young Catholic boy, he remembers the sermon from the priest and he begins on hell. I can only read the beginning, but I, look, it's so good I've got to read some of it. The preacher's voice sank. He paused, joined his palms for an instant, parted them, and then he resumed. Now let us try for a moment to realise, as far as we can, the nature of that abode of the damned, which the justice of an offended God has called into existence for the eternal punishment of sinners. Hell is a straight and dark and foul-smelling prison, an abode of demons and lost souls filled with fire and smoke. The straightness of this prison house is expressly designed by God to punish those who refused to be bound by his laws. In earthly prisons, the poor captive has at least some liberty of movement, were it only within the four walls of his cell or in the gloomy yard of his prison, not so in hell. There, by reason of the great number of the damned, the prisoners are heaped together in their awful prison, the walls of which are said to be 4,000 miles thick, and the damned are so utterly bound and helpless that as a blessed saint, St. Olsom, writes in his book on similitudes, they are not even able to remove from the eye a worm that gnaws at it. And so it goes on. That's he's just starting. Um, he gets onto the smells and the fire. And there's a movie here. <laughs> there's a movie here. Room 101, George Orwell, 1984. It's like that, yes. It's always been my sense of Has it? Yeah. 
that it will be what I most am terrified by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, well, so when I say exactly, it's almost like a repository for every fear and anxiety you've ever had. Um, and so, uh, now some people try and get out of it and say, look, it's not that bad, it's just, a, it's just kind of a very lonely place, and a place without God. I at least think, look, James Joyce had it right. Like, if you're going to believe in it, let's kind of go the whole hog. Anyway, it's a vexed question because of that. And um, it's, to be honest with you, I could read just as bad portions from, uh, you know, some preachers like Arthur Pink and others who are just like, it's terrible. So, um, it's not just a vexed question, it's actually very, it's a tangled web of questions. You can't start getting into it and reading about it without just going on a metaphysical ride through all of <coughs> philosophy. And they're all very connected. You, ha you immediately will get into predestinational free will. You will then get into the meaning of eternity and time. You will then get into the nature of the body and the soul. And the nature of, therefore, resurrection. You will then get into the devil and demons, their origin, role and destiny. Are they suffering in hell or doing the suffering in hell, etc. And importantly, you'll get into the nature of goodness and a theory of good and evil. And you will get into creation and the intention of God, the nature of the word heaven, and finally and very importantly, the nature of the word judgment. What does it mean? Is it a, is it a word for punishment or a word for um, reform? I mean, all of those areas, and there are others, as I've been reading about the debate, over, have wandered into, not wandered, they've had gone full bore into those. So it's not as if it's an easy subject to think about. Um, it's also a very, very old question. So this is my amateur's history map of the, of the lines of the question. Um, no, it's not. It's not the amateur's history map, sorry. Uh, this is Calvin's tight, nasty circle of grace that grew out of hell. So you begin with a proposition, uh, only saved by faith in Christ. You cannot be saved by works, which is, we're happy so far. Therefore, believe in Christ and make a decision for Christ is the normal evangelical response. Calvin, however, would say, but faith sounds like a work, and therefore it obviates grace. So your belief is a work. Um, the free will side will say, go down the free will uh, area of radical free will, but there are problems there. There are problems everywhere you go, which is what about those who have never heard of the gospel? And what about the unfair vagaries of even decision? I mean, some people think better than others, or I might have had an abusive father, and you tell me God's my father, and I can't hear it. I mean, it gets really tricky. It gets really tricky. And the worst, which I lived with, and my dear wife, is you have to communicate, if you believe this, the gospel to every single person you come across in your day. So when I was at university and I got on the train to go to university and I'm an introvert, I carried a whole pack of tracks called The Second Death and I gave them to every single person I met on the train and I preached on trains and I preached on Sydney University's front lawn and every single person, their blood was on my hands if I didn't preach the gospel to them. It's exhausting if you take it seriously and I took it seriously. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, as a way, the only kind of practical way is sort of not to take it seriously. But if you do take it seriously, it's quite something. To his credit, Calvin took it seriously. 
uh, just nasty, which is called double predestination, which is God predestines who will believe, but who will not believe. So therefore, grace necessitates that God must create people for the purpose of sending them to an evil torment. Can't get out of it. And he doesn't try. He doesn't try. At least he's intellectually honest. See what I mean? There are problems everywhere you go. It's not like anyone's got an easy answer out of this, is what I'm trying to paint. And this is probably depressing so far. You're wondering, is there any way out? <laughs> but I am trying to say that I, I think everybody, it is problematic every which way you look. Um, it, it, this is, it's also a very, very old question that's been around for a long, long time. When I say around for a long, long time, in my estimation, it was a lot bigger a debate in the first 400 years of the church and the wrong guy won and it kind of got eclipsed. That's what I would loosely say. Um, but here's a good example of the, how old the debate was. I didn't know, but there were a whole class of people um, sorry, the, that, that, uh, the statement I just made about the wrong guy won, I, I got mixed up on the slides. That'll come the next slide. I found out about a group called the Cambridge Platonists who lived in the 17th century. Now, th this man I quoted, Peter Sterry, was one of them. And, and I'll tell you now, because I read it tonight, his sermon on, um, from Zechariah on opening the gates of heaven is just the most breathtaking picture I have ever read. And he's a Puritan. But he was a universalist. He believed everybody would eventually be redeemed. That's what he believed. So this group of people were very influential in England and they were horrified by Calvin. Um, that's, they were very influential in English public life. Tended to be very, very moderate people who wanted dialogue. And something was happening in the 17th century. It had been happening for a while, which if you think about it, was beginning to be challenging, and that was called colonialism. They were discovering there were millions and millions of people in advanced civilizations around the world who'd never heard of Christ. So if you think about that, like which was obviously been happening in the era, you can begin to see how theologians would say, well, hang on, what about them? What, what, are they totally excluded? And so on. So th that was causing a lot of thoughtfulness. But their attitude to Calvin was well summed up by this guy. This is just one example, Joseph Glanville in, in 1682. It's a little bit thick, the sentence, but hang on to it, particularly thinking of what we read about hell. For the first error, which is the ground of the rest, is that things are good and just merely because God wills them to be so. If that be granted and we are disabled from using arguments taken from both natural notions of goodness and the perfections of the divine nature. He said, if you want to stretch the meaning of the word good so far, that it includes sending people to hell. That's what he's saying. He says, once you stretch the word like that, that's what that all means, then we are disabled from having an argument against the blackest and most blasphemous opinions that were ever entertained concerning God's dealings with the sons of men. If there be no settled meaning of the terms good and evil, then God may have made his reasonable creatures on purpose to damn them forever. And he calls that an awful concept. So the Cambridge Platonists were very much against, you know, they had a range of views, but they, they very much developed this, I suppose, argument against Calvin because of, of, uh, they said it transgresses the nature of goodness 
and the nature of God. So that's where they were. And as I say, the other thing about them to remember is they were Orthodox Puritan Christians. They were, they were not liberals in any sense of the word. The rough history of the question is worth looking at, and I'm going to say a bit about this now and more in a later talk. It really goes back to, I suppose, the origin of the, of the, of, is between Tertullian and Origen. So Tertullian was the Orthodox guy, very much pushed hell, and Origen definitely believed in universal redemption. Now, Origen's a bit of a... I haven't read Origen. I've read a heck of a lot of Gregory of Nyssa, but I haven't read Origen. But Origen is making a big comeback in many people's minds. Um, he's a breathtaking... He had a breathtaking picture of God. Breathtaking. Um, uh, Erasmus said, I would rather read ten page, uh, uh, one page of Origen than ten pages of St. Augustine. And that was Erasmus's recommendation of him. Very, very influential. He had a few crazy ideas, but he was speculating. His crazy ideas were on the origins of souls and so on. But uh, the top line is really the line that believed in some form of hell. Now, uh, St. Augustine really crystallised it. And I'm going to take, talk a lot more about him later on because I've read a great deal of St. Augustine. And that set the position of the Western Church, particularly Rome. And Calvin was very indebted to Augustine. Very indebted to Augustine. And in a sense, that's the grid lines of Protestantism. The bottom line was the alternative. And the difference is the bottom line really was into creation theology and resurrection. And it was the Cappadocian fathers, most particularly Gregory of Nyssa, who really advanced a much bigger picture of the gospel. They had a range of ideas, but Gregory of Nyssa was quite likely a universalist, which simply means he believed that every creature God made would be caught up in goodness. He had a massive, massive theory of evil and goodness, which is just breathtaking. He actually thinks, thought evil was not a positive force. It didn't exist. It was the absence of the good. Only the good could be eternal. And evil would exhaust itself and good would swallow up the world in the knowledge of God. If you read it, you just want to cheer. I mean, whether he's right or wrong, it's a phenomenal picture he's got. Um, and um, he's uh, Bentley Hart's hero. Bentley Hart says... His, his book on the creation, on the making of man and his book on the resurrection are the epic books in Christian eschatology and the vision of the future. And having read them both at, uh, deeply over the last few months, I, I can't comment, but I'll just tell you I've never read anything like it. So that led to the Eastern Church and the, and the history of the Eastern Church, that people like the Cambridge Platonists and the, and the creation theology. I've got a, a bit of a... Detour in the middle to a, a guy called John Dunn Scotus who made another big uh, movement that I kind of like, but I won't talk about that too much today. He was sort of middle ground guy. Uh, Bentley Hart's view, because um, Bentley Hart is one of the people like Richard Raw who's really advancing uh, the, the idea of a, of a, a, they say universal salvation. I don't like that phrase. I'm going to mention another one in a, in, in a moment. Is that the the defining debate was between Augustine and Gregory, who were roughly at the same time. Uh, with Augustine developing the, more, the view that became the traditional orthodoxy and Gregory developing an alternative view of, uh, as I say, cosmic redemption. Now, I've read them both in, in a lot of detail. Um, 
because the only way I sort these things out myself is just to go back and read the original. I, mean, I can't read the original language, but I can certainly read it. Yeah, so the question that Peter just asked for the tape is, to what, do I know to what degree uh, Gregory's ideas are typical of the Orthodox tradition? I don't know personally, but Bentley Hart claims that... He is, he's Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. So he claims that that tradition, people like Maximus and others who are... You know, he, he, he lists name after name after name of their greats who simply were on this kind of more universalist trend. Um, the point about St Augustine is that he did not read Greek. He was using a bad translation, it was the Vulgate, and he never understood Greek. And that is very important when you get to a word like eternal. Or Hebrew. Or, he, or Hebrew. Even more important. Even more important. So, um, he was in North Africa, he obviously influenced Rome a lot. Look, he was a great pastoral guy, he, he was you know, a great shepherd, he had a good heart, but to be blunt, he had an unstable family history. I mean... To be even more blunt, he was absolutely obsessed by sex. You've just got to read the confessions. I mean, some of it's fantastic. Some are thinking, this guy really needs therapy. Um, I mean, it, 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 is, it is quite obsessive. Um, he was a great man, but he didn't really have a very kind of what you might call stable family background. Um, you can get out of those things, but they tend to leave their mark. He was brilliant, and he was a classicist and a rhetorician. I just think, bluntly, he wrote too much. Like if you write a lot, speaking as a, someone who's, who doesn't write anything but thinks a lot, <laughs> you can write too much because you don't think enough. He actually had an army of people, like 20 or 30, and he was dictating books to them. And it was, He had a passion about it. Uh, I think he should have thought a bit more. Um, the Cappadocian Fathers are extraordinary. And just so you know, like if I say they believed in universal salvation, yes, but they are the people who forged the Nicene Creed. They are the people who won the Battle of the Trinity. So these are not some kind of Fruit Loop guys on the edge of things, right? Um, they, in an epic way, solved problems nobody had solved before. Now, they were an extraordinary family. They were a family. Actually, the Cappadocian fathers were three. They were two brothers and a mate from university. It's like... <laughs> yes? divert you, why did you pick, to, will you explain why you're starting at Tertullian and Origin and, and at some point will you pick up, say, what the Jews were thinking earlier? Yeah, I, I didn't, uh, just because I, I simply haven't had the time to kind of go back in and do my own study of the Jewish history, I really more sort of started in the middle with these guys and Origin is clearly the forerunner of a lot of the Cappadocian ideas, so I stuck him in, and Tertullian was, in a sense, his... Tertullian wrote in Greek, in Latin, sorry, he was a lawyer. He's a lawyer, wrote in Latin, yeah. yeah. and he wrote in Latin. So that's where you get that line. Yeah. From one point of view, it's all in Latin. The, the, the other point about the Cappadocian fathers um, is that they were known as um, mysticals, or um, mystics. Now, that word has to be properly understood. It doesn't mean what we mean by the modern word. I'll give you, tell you a story about them. Well, first of all, before I tell you the story, let me explain who they were. They were from a large family. I don't know how many siblings Gregory had, but the, possibly, possibly, Julie, this will make you happy, the greatest one of all was his eldest sister, Macrina, who had started um, you know, a huge nunnery and hospitals, and actually his book, 
Gregory's final book on the resurrection, on the soul and the resurrection. And it's an epic book because it begins with him getting the news of the death of his brother. So he really personalised his brother Basil. It's really personalised. And he talks about the, the horror of death. And he goes to tell Macrina and he sees she's wasting away. And she says, well, I'm dying of cancer, which he did. And it, it's, it's a dialogue between Gregory and Macrina, with Macrina being the teacher. She who is at death's door teaching about the resurrection. Um, it's, it's phenomenal writing. But the, um, the, so the brothers that, the, uh, in the family were Basil, who was a, um, a bishop and um, started enormous sort of social works. Um, he loved, they, Basil loved contemplation and a life of contemplation. But as he said, if you contemplate all the time, whose feet are you going to wash? Um, and so they, I mean, this was an amazing family. And their friend was Gregory of Nizanus, who was, uh, went to university with them. So imagine these young, three young guys who were brilliant and from a very settled family with a long, quite a tradition of faith. It's in Turkey. And they were the ones, and, and Gregory of Nizanus was the youngest. He was the youngest and by most counts, the most brilliant. What I said about the mystics is that... Um, I was speaking at a conference um, 10 years ago. It was a big design conference, and I was a keynote speaker. There were two others opening it up, and it was about design thinking and art. And this other guy from Michigan University, I still don't know who he was, I'd love to get in touch with him, said, look, can you actually teach art and design? If you do teach it, you'll probably turn it into a formula. If you turn it into a formula, you'll lose the mystery of it. He said, that is the great battle the Cappadocian fathers fought. They refused to turn Christianity into a formula. They were comfortable with ambiguity and they, they left it as an art. And then he went into John's Gospel. I was like, <laughs> he was amazed at that. So what fascinated them was mystery, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of what God is doing. So they were mystics as they were um, looking at the mystery. Um, they, of course, were fluent in Greek, um, being from that area of the world. So that's a rough history of the question where the, as it were, different opinions are drawn. The landscape of traditional answers. So that's how difficult the question is. The landscape of traditional answers essentially goes on this spectrum. Left-hand side is hell is eternal torment, which means, I guess what it says, we know what it means. It means it's never-ending and it's awful and it's, it's forever and ever and ever. The right-hand side is what's called universal salvation, which is at the end of all time, somehow or other, God brings to himself every, everything he has created and every person he's ever created. And there is a universal salvation. The middle one is sort of more around annihilation, which would say there is no eternal hell, but people just lose life that God gave. And it, you know, it, it, I, in, in the words of one of our friends, I lose myself. So that, that's the, the middle ground. Um, and I would say today there's more of a movement to the right, but it could be partly, to, it depends how far to the right you go, but there's definitely a movement away from the left for, for good reasons. But you can't just look at it that way because you're, then you've got to put free will and predestination over the top of it, which is another axis. Um, so bottom left is definitely Calvin and St. Augustine, particularly Calvin, which is, 
It isn't just this hell, it's God's created you to go there and he works out who does. Um, the evangelical tradition's been much more, you get out, the get out of jail card is, yeah, yeah, but we've all got free will, so it's kind of up to us and God doesn't want to interfere with us. Bentley Hart is excoriating on that position. He says, that's like a parent who's got a four-year-old child who lets them put their hand in the fire because it's good for them, because he doesn't want to interfere with their right to make a decision. So there's still problems with free will. It's not like it gets us right out of it, but it's better than God doing it deliberately. Um, The very important point about the right-hand side is judgment still matters big time. Uh, I suppose it's what what the Catholic Church called purgatory, but they envisage real accountability and judgment, but for the purpose of some kind of purification. So there was this post-mortem, after-death period of judgment and purification that they played with. Even Luther thought of the possibility of that. And that's where you have people like the ones we've mentioned. So that's sort of the landscape of choices. Does that make sense? Um, now, within that landscape, let's go step back a bit and try and, you know, when you're grappling with a question, if you're too close to the question, sometimes well, you've got to move yourself back and say, hang on, I need to take another look at this. And I, I want to do a little bit of sort of tuition with you on um, how to ask great questions, because questions change everything. I'll give you an example. Um, For those on the tape who are in other countries, Governor Macquarie is one of Australia's great leaders. He was the governor of New South Wales in around about 1810 and is often called the father of the country because he was the first person who didn't just view New South Wales as a jail, he viewed it as a nation. And he built enormous infrastructure up and down Macquarie Street of churches and buildings and roads and, um, because he had a vision for what the country could be. So if we ask the question, was Macquarie a good governor? Well, the British government asked that question. Okay. And they had an answer, <laughs> which was the budget. So they sent out Commissioner Big, one of the most ironically named people in human history, <laughs> who was an auditor. And his question was, how effectively has Macquarie controlled expenditure in the interest of His Majesty's government in the the UK and Britain? That was his question. And the answer was, he has not. He has wasted money big time all over the place. And he was right. If that's your question, he overspent, he splurged, he spent far too much money. If you ask a question, the point is you'll get an answer to it. Do you know what I mean? Um, But... But if you changed your question and thought of the question that Macquarie was asking, how can I build the foundations of a great nation? Um, his boast was that he found the place uh, a jail and left it a nation. That was his boast. So you see how questions change everything. And this is quite a good example because it's not a bad analogy of the, the question Gregory asked was much closer to Macquarie's. What's God doing in the end of time? It was more a question of a vision back rather than a problem forward. Does that make sense? So the questions are important. Here's how I frame the hell question. Um, It's a model, and for the purposes of people who are on the tape, it's 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 three stratum. And down the bottom in red is what I'd call the redemption story, which is a fall, cross, forgiveness decision story. And that is, uh, 
which leads people to points of decision. Up above it, one level above it and bigger than it is the Earth story or the created orders story, which is to do with the creation zone of the Earth, matter and the public space. And then above that, in the third zone up the top, is God as creator and what he's doing in the zone of, of heaven, uh, which is eternal, unchanging and perfect, apparently. Now, as you can see in this, in this um, graphic, the question, I think, of hell is late and low. It's on the bottom rung and it's way down the track. Is this person, you know, what is, what is your fate in eternity? Are you, where are you going to spend eternity, heaven or hell? So that is actually where it's positioned. And it does assume that the destiny uh, of heaven is God's place. So I think the perspective of that hell question is really, as I framed it, who's on the bus? It's a who's on the bus question. So let's look at that a little bit more um, as this question and the problems with it. The first problem with it is that it's absolutely a question of inclusion and exclusion, and that's how everybody hears it. We, we can't get out of it. Everybody hears who's on the bus, I am, you're not. It's, you know, from, an from a gospel point of view, it's hard to kind of work your way out of that one. Um, it can be, the survivors can have glee. I mean, I don't have glee, but some writers had enormous glee that the you know, actually had the righteous in heaven rejoicing over the punishment of the wicked. It's too bad to read that stuff. Uh, a more bigger problem for me is, frankly, the guilt of the survivors. Um, Bentley Hart makes a lot of this. He says, so we, what is a human being? A human being is memories, relationships. So what comfort is it to me? I'm in heaven and my sister, daughter, best friend are burning in hell. Just tell me how I'm happy. Well, the only, uh, he said, you, you can only get out of it by saying, I get some kind of amnesia. Like, I don't remember them all, and so on and so on. It's problematic, and it's, to me, it's problematic this side of, you know, of, uh, of, um, of dying. So they're problems. We've just got to face it. And, and uh, from a branding point of view, the inclusion-exclusion one is a really... I've always felt awkward in myself when I'm talking about the gospel and I'm thinking it's, it, it, I'm framing it as inclusion, exclusion, join the club. It just, it, it's always felt awkward to me. But anyway, that's, that's, that's a problem. I think there's enormous problems with biblical interpretation. This is probably the most famous passage about hell, or one of them, the sheep and the goats. Yeah. Right? It's a long one, we won't read it all, but it's really important to read. So if you read it through, and we heard a great sermon on it, which in a sense put the orthodox point of view, and it was it was, it was uh, the preacher was sort of like, okay, <clears throat> deep breath, now we've got to do the tough stuff, right? Um, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. When did we do that, Lord? We never met you before. Insofar as you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Then the opposite. 
Those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. Stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. When do we ever see you hungry, Lord? When did we ever see you thirsty? He'll reply, whenever you did not do it. For one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, I am, that's the NIV. Now, the way everyone handles it, and the preacher handled it, is the last verse. The sheep and the goats, those who go to heaven, those who go to hell. But I've always thought this is awkward because, okay, my doctrine says I can't do a single good work that gets me to heaven. Right? I get to heaven by the grace of God. I go back into this and it's all about good works. So you read it. The only way out of it is to say, well, look, none of us can do good works, but when you believe in Jesus, he confers all these good works on you. So this is kind of a, you're having to twist the evident meaning of the passage, whatever it is, into something that is, it's not saying to me, it was never saying, as a literary critic, it was never saying it. It's actually talking about something, I don't quite know what, well, I've got ideas now, but to read this through the evangelical prism, you've got to twist that all around. Because clearly he's saying it's about nations, it's about nations, it's about, essentially to me, brotherly love, and a God who wants us to love our neighbour, and will judge people for not loving their neighbour. That's what it's about. It's about works. So the kind of believe or not doesn't fit in. Do you see what I mean? You see, it's problematic to try and squeeze the evangelical gospel into that. Whatever you're going to say, to me, it doesn't fit. The last verse we'll come to later on, but the very, very problematical word there is eternal. So does that, does that make sense to you, what I've said about the reading of this passage? Um, and particularly when you start reading it in context, it seems to me to be talking about something else. I mean, you know, poetic analysis is, is my strongest gift of anything I have ever done in my life, which is throw words at me and I'll do something with them. And my first experience of the words is I just let them wash over me. Before I analyse, I let them sink into me. And I, that might take me weeks. And I know when I'm not getting it. I know, hang on, I don't know what this is saying. Oh, it's obvious, it's this, this, this. No, no, it's not. There's something deeper going on. And then you begin to untangle it and analyse it. And this, uh, this has always been my response to the sheep and the goats, that this traditional trying to fit this back into the framework of a decision for Christ and forgiveness and we can't save ourselves, it, it's not fitting into that, whatever that means. If you play what I call Bible verse tennis... Um, you, you really don't get anywhere with Bible verse tennis. Um, what about this first? What about because it goes back and forth? But the question is, and this is a really, according to Bentley Hart, the score's forty-seven-three in favour of the Universalists. So whether he's right or wrong, I don't know. But I, but because I haven't counted, but I can tell you. There is some enormously important points, one of which I've already mentioned, which is nowhere in the epistles of Paul does the doctrine of hell, eternal torment, get a look in. Go home and look at it tonight. He just doesn't talk about it. Furthermore... It's something you mentioned. Hmm? It's 
It sounds like something you'd mention. It's like a bit of an oversight because it's all my epistles and I uh, never quite got to that one. No, it was like you. He just didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> Another one which I checked tonight, which I wanted to do for a long while, is the 12 sermons of Acts. This is pretty good data. This is the early church. 12 occasions talking about Jesus. Guess what never gets mentioned? There is no mention, no hint, no threat of if you don't believe this, you go to hell. There's warnings because he's king and you crucified him. How dare you crucify the king of the world? That was sort of what they were saying. You idiots, you did the wrong thing. Um, so they were very confronting, but they never, ever covered anything to do with eternal hell or punishment. That's data. Um, the parable, and then there's a lot I read and it's sort of like because the incumbent position that I grew up with was hell, and it, it's like all incumbent positions, it dominates your mind, you just don't read what's in front of you. And the most obvious is Romans 5. I mean, I tried, it just, it is so obvious. Now, we can argue about it, but what he says is, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. I read that like about a year ago, I thought, what? I mean, it says all, all. And furthermore, it's not just a verse, it's the entire argument is running on parallelism, the entire argument. Now we can begin to say, yes, but hang on, the second all is only for those, it was like it was available to all, and only those who decide to believe. And fine, you can have that debate, but at face value, it doesn't say that. Do you see what I mean? Titus, for the grace of God has appeared giving salvation to all human beings. Really interesting. That's Bentley Hart's translation. The NIV is offering not giving. See how a word can... So, 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 I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? But I think that's another all one. And uh, the parable of the 99 and the one lost sheep tells me he wants 100, not 99. So, in other words, there's tons of stuff that's on this. That's, that's the 47.3. <laughs> and I think it's... I, think it's, I read Ephesians because th th there is a pathway for all the people who move get less and less satisfied with hell. It's essentially Colossians, Ephesians 1, the cosmic Christ begins to give you a different picture. I read Ephesians recently, just saying, okay, I'll put on this universalist hat and read Ephesians. Does it make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Anyway, translation is a biggie. Well, you probably know that uh, there's been a very controversial event in Christian publishing, which is Bentley Hart's published his translation of the New Testament. Furthermore, he and Tom Wright have hit each other over the head with baseball bats um, because Tom Wright made, in my view, the very bad mistake of writing a review of Bentley Hart's. You don't write a review of a competitor's book, right? It's just not good form because clearly you've got self-interest. Um, I think his review was rushed and he had a few things. Well, like Bentley Hart's not the kind of guy you want to antagonise because Tom Wright's nice, Bentley Hart's not. Um, and uh, so he thundered back and it's, it's, it's interesting to read. But nonetheless, it's, uh, it's, uh, 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 you've, got to, you've got to, with Bentley Hart's translation, uh, understand Rowan Williams wrote a commendation on it, the Archbishop of Canterbury and John Milbank. They're two of the profoundest theologians. And, I mean, Rowan Williams said... This scrupulous, knotty, learned rendering of some of the most familiar texts of our culture makes us see with new clarity just what was and is uncomfortably new about the New Testament. 
That's what Ryan Williams said. What John Milbank said was much more confronting, which was this. This is a theological event of the first magnitude. Hart has shown that after 500 years, the core of Reformation theology is unbiblical and that certain currents of Latin theology are dubious or inadequate. Well, there. He's, he's, he's putting it out there. So, um, and uh, Bentley Hart has uh, strongly believes that so without going too much into it, and, uh, translation is a very political thing. One of the points he makes, which is dead true, is all done by committees. Right? John Walton made this plain to me because he's on one of them. I mean, the most famous one is, you know, that from Proverbs, he who saves sinners is wise. The, he who saves souls is wise. Now, that is engraved on the foundation of the Moody Bible Institute. It's a completely wrong translation. There's no way in the world it means that. <laughs> It has nothing, I mean, you're, I, even when I read it, what's Proverbs doing about like an evangelical verse? It's completely wrong. Um, John went through it with me, but he's made the point. How do, it works because you're on a committee, there's three of you, you know, so you each have a go at it and then there's a kind of a vote and then you've got to think of the marketing, like it's the American market that drives everything in and every product, especially the Bible. Are we going to go into the American market and actually change that? No way. And so... Worldview and politics and marketing uh, uh, really make a big deal of things. And um, uh, Bentley Hart has, and I suppose Tom Wright did his on his own too, so you've got them differently. Two of the big words, what he does at the back of the book, and I've actually photocopied for those of you who'd like it, he has 16 words that he thinks are big words that he's got opinions on. Now, whether he's right or whether he's wrong, I don't know. I know enough about linguistics to find his handling, he's a very, Tom Wright is good at history, Bentley Hart is good at philosophy and, and literature. He's much more subtle with language in his hands than Tom is, much more. And um, his handling of the connotations and greyness of language is masterful. These are two of the big words. So eternal, and it's pretty obvious that this is a, I mean, there's, a freight, there's a freight of meaning behind this word. And hell. Look, eternal, I won't go into it too much, but it is simply, it's easy enough to understand. The Greek word is aeonos, which we get the word eon from. Like eons, generations, not timelessness. That's Bentley Hart's point. It means so he, it's of an age or of the ages. That's how he translates. And Tom Wright mostly does the same thing in his translation. So the word eternal, we can, you know, eternal punishment is, he translates, Bentley Hart translates the end of, that what we just read in Matthew uh, this way. Um, then he will answer them saying, Amen, I tell you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers, neither did you do it to me. And these will go to the chastening of that age and the just to the life of that age. Very, very different to eternal punishment and eternal life. So uh, I've got photocopies for those who'd like to read his, his explanation of these two big words. Hell is interesting. <laughs> like, hell is like Christmas. <laughs> it's, a, it's as Christian as Christmas. It's likely come from Old Norse mythology. The actual word hell, right? It's likely come from Old Norse mythology. Uh, 
the name of Loki's daughter who rules over the evil dead in the lowest of all the worlds. So it's a pagan concept and the word fitted to a Christian idiom. So I, whether it was the King James Bible that first used that word rather than another word, which they should have used, I don't know. But this word hell is, is not a word. that it, it, Its whole background is mythological. Um, uh, in Middle English place where the patriarchs, prophets, etc. waited for the atonement, used in the King James Version for the Old Testament word Sheol and the New Testament Greek Hades Gehenna. So Gehenna is the word hell. It's extremely problematic what it means. It's a metaphor for like the burning rubbish dump outside of Jerusalem. It was a, it was a place. It's clearly used metaphorically to use a, a range of things. They were all to do with some kind of punishment or bad stuff, but it did not mean what, anything like what me, we mean by that word hell. So he translates it the Vale of Gehenna. He just leaves it as it said uh, in Bentley Hart. So there are some problems with translation. The other problem is uh, hell and God's goodness. And there are two terms that I just wanted to throw at you because they're important, univocity and equivocity. Um, essentially... Univocity says, look, we don't understand. I mean, I know it sounds bad that God sends people to hell, but he's got a bigger idea of goodness than you and I, and we'll find out eventually that he's good. And that's sort of, in the words of Bentley Hart, you have now stretched the word good so far it no longer means good, and you may as well not use language for anything. That's univocity. You've destroyed language by... You can say anything about anything now. That, that's what that amounts to. Whereas equivocity says... Oh, sorry, it's equivocity means that. Univocity means if a word means good to us, it must mean good to God. Sorry, I had it the wrong way around. Equivocity is a word can mean anything. Univocity means good means good. And what is natural to the human being as being good is good and not good. By the way, the Cambridge Platonists were in exactly that tent as well. So, I'm going to finish with this. Uh, what would be a better question than the, you know, who's on the bus and who's not on the bus? What would be a better question? Uh, there's a great book out at the moment, I don't know if you've heard of it, called A More Beautiful Question by Warren Burger. It's a great book, essentially how questions... The book is called A More Beautiful Question, The Power of Inquiry to Spark Breakthrough Ideas. So could we try a better question than who's on the bus, who's not on the bus, which is a question of access. And I'm going to... This is just like a door opening to the next talk because I thought we might want to have some discussion and questions after this and, and, and sort of think about it uh, in the next few weeks. Going back to our diagram, I think the better question is what house are you building to God? What house are you building? Now, if you ask that question, um, then you join the game right back at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of creation, to find the answer to that. And um, the question becomes not a question of access, but a question of intent. Why would God create anything? Which is where Gregory went. Why would he do that? And, um, sorry, this diagram is, I got myself confused because I changed the diagram. Heaven would be changed, and they're no longer interested in heaven. They're interested in the whole of these things, the whole of heaven and earth. And the zone between heaven and earth gets problematic. There are enormous problems in God creating anything because how can the eternal mix with the changing? 
And this is not a sin question. This is just a question of what on earth is God doing in wanting to participate with us. So those questions drive very different inquiries. Um, interestingly, I think it's the epic question that Stephen the Martyr finished his sermon on, for which they killed him. Um, his, his, the climax of his sermon in Acts 7 was, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So I don't think, you know, I used to read them as rhetorical questions. I actually don't think they're rhetorical because he's picking up not just Isaiah but 2 Samuel 7. Now, the interesting thing in 2 Samuel 7 is Solomon began thinking he was going to build a house for God and God stopped him and says, I'm going to build a house for you, or David did. I'm going to build you a house, David. So this enormous concept that somehow or other creation is a gift, a gift for us, is where all the inquiry starts. So when you move into the Gregory world, that's what he's about. He begins there and says, what's the vision for this and what's the end for this? Importantly, um, what Gregory also does, which um, was on the previous slide and I haven't really shown it, is for him, whatever began here did not finish in Genesis 2. It finishes at the end of all things. And only in the end of all things will there be, so his concept, Gregory's concept of the end of all things is it is the final epiphany of God. Not rather than the judgment, it's the final revelation of who he is and what he's doing. The question is finally answered. And furthermore, it's being answered now and we're in the answering of it. So that's, that's roughly how he frames his eschatology. Well, that's probably enough for tonight. I was going to finish a bit on paradox. Um, but uh, yes I will the Bible is uh, as we think about this full of paradox it actually glories in paradox I mean so many of the Proverbs begin with he who opens his mouth is wise he who shuts his mouth is wise I mean they just, they, they just love contradicting themselves. Well, hang on, how can they both? We know in life they, are, they both are true, actually. Um, it sort of depends. And, um, and this concept of apparent opposites getting a resolution is very close to the heart of Greek thought. And I think that's the heart of the chiastic structure. Um, so in a sense, the heaven, hell, grace, judgment is an enormous paradox with a big question mark, which Gregory, Gregory would say will only be answered in the final revelation of God. Bentley Hart goes so far as to say, if it sounds impious, will God judge himself? No, he will reveal himself, which is to say the same thing. That's what he said, quote unquote. So many questions we have about God and justice and the mess of life, which are, we're still swimming in the middle of, which... Um, the resolution of the paradox, only at the end will they be revealed, but they'll be revealed in Christ, which is, which is where I'll finish, which is with what Peter Sterry said. The quote that I began with actually says, 
uh, not just that we can't know much, he says, for the same truth can appear under contrary notions and in contradictory opinions. And then this is the glory of spiritual things, that they can clothe themselves with all manner of earthly shapes. It is the greatness and majesty of Jesus Christ that he passes through all forms and conditions and yet still is the same in the midst of them all. So at a high level, Christ is always the resolution. The incarnation, the incarnation is always the resolution of these paradoxes. So with that tantalising finish, <laughs> I will stop there and um, suggest we just have a little bit of a break. Um, I, if you want to, after five minutes or so, we could uh, have some questions and discussion because it's a big topic. But uh, just to repeat, my goal tonight was to open up the landscape of the debate, kind of knock it apart a bit, show how messy and problematic it is, no easy answers, prepare to use myself as a stalking horse. Uh, obviously, I'm attracted to the universalist position, so I'll put that as a hypothesis and work it through, uh, but I hold it lightly, lest I don't hold it with the same firmness so I might that the Jesus rose from the dead, but... It's, it's, it's even worthwhile doing it from a point of view of looking at different perspectives on the scriptures. Okay? Thanks. Do you want to have some questions afterwards, or do you want to have, uh, now, or do you want to have a... Well, would you, or would you rather have a bit of a stand, stand leg stretch? Let's just do that.